Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. If you visit the website of Nigerian-born writer, philosopher, trickster, and culture disruptor Bayo Okomalafe, the first thing that greets you is this impressive piece of prose. Welcome, traveler, it says. I am quite confident that even as the oceans boil and the hurricanes beat violently against our once safe shores and the air sweats with the heat of impending doom and our fists protest the denial of climate justice, that there is a path to take that has nothing to do with victory or defeat, a place we do not yet know the coordinates to, a question we do not yet know how to ask. The point of the departed arrow is not merely to pierce the bullseye and carry the trophy. The point of the arrow is to sing the wind and remake the world in the brevity of flight. There are things we must do, sayings we must say, thoughts we must think, that look nothing like the images of success that have so thoroughly possessed our visions of justice. May this new decade be remembered as the decade of the strange path, of the third way, of the broken binary, of the traversal disruption, the chirotic moment, the post-human movement for emancipation, the gift of disorientation that opened up new places of power, and of slow limbs. And this piece summarizes well why I've wanted to speak with Bio for quite a long time, especially the part of it where he says that there are things that we must do that look nothing like the images of success that have so thoroughly possessed our visions of justice. For as discourse gets increasingly predictable and increasingly polarized, I find Bio to be a voice that is comfortable dancing in the in-between spaces, from where he sends invitations for those daring enough to tread. And you have to be daring to listen to Bio's words. You have to be willing to let your feathers get ruffled a little bit. He revels in the place where, as he says, the gods of the fault lines live, and things don't adhere to easy definitions, and assumptions are challenged, and histories rewritten, and previously unseen relationships are articulated and then deconstructed before our eyes. In his emphasis on in-between spaces and relationalities, I find his work to be deeply animist. So much discourse these days is position versus position. Even those discourses that supposedly exist in support of non-traditional modes of communication seem to auto-construct along the same positional dynamics, the same positional lines, but not bios. There is what you could call a commitment to discomfort, as if he's saying, I'm not going to make vast overgeneralizations about movements and situations. I'm not going to succumb to villain narratives, victim narratives, pathologizing narratives. I'm not going to fall into the trap of easy vernacular. I'm not going to say a word because it's the right word to say. Even the biography on his site speaks relationally as opposed to positionally. In other words, he spends a lot of time in his biography speaking about other people besides himself. Quote, 
Bio Komalafe is the grateful life partner to EJ, father to Alethea Anya and Kaya Jaden Abayomi, son of Olofun Milayo Ibidapo Akomalafe and Ignatius Abayomi Akomalafe, and descendant of Yoruba fields of archetypal becomings and mythopoetic landscapes. He is an author, celebrated speaker, teacher, and self-styled trans public intellectual whose vocation goes beyond justice and speaking truth to power to opening up other spaces of power with and queering fond formulations and configurations of hope. Other spaces of power with, like, you know, the power that invisible Saharan dust storms have on Amazonian soil and on New Yorkers' lungs. The power of a Norse story reimagined through a Nigerian trickster's lips. Like I said, I'd been wanting to talk to Bio for a long time, so when I saw him post on a topic that I've thought quite a lot about, the increasing dominance of psychology vernacular as the medium through which pretty much everything in our modern world is measured and evaluated, I knew the time was right. Specifically, Bio, who himself was trained as a psychologist, wrote this, quote, I have nurtured an urgency to decenter Western psychology. I have felt the need to say more about the colonial dynamics at work within the discipline of psychology, how it manufactures its object of analysis, how it is value-laden and culturally composed, instead of being, as is often presumed, an epistemologically superior glimpse of the true nature of the psyche, and how it is entangled with a politics of sameness and control. So that's where our conversation starts. Why the need to decenter psychology? First and foremost, and right off the bat, you you wrote a little while back. I have nurtured an urgency to decenter Western psychology. Why yeah. do you why do you see this urgency to to decenter Western psychology? I'll just go with the names we've adopted for the convenience of conversation. Western psychology is because Western psychology is complicit in the creation of Western modernity, right? Psychology is not a thing apart. Its disciplinarity, its history, its legacies are tied up with the industrialization and the commodification and the manufacturing and the replication and the reproduction of the human subject, right? How we think about what it means to be human, what it means to have agency, what it means to think, who has cognition, who doesn't have cognition. You know, all of this is tied in with the historicity of psychology. So decentering that is at least one gesture towards saying there are other psychologies. It's one way of saying also that what we're battling with as a civilization today, um, the Anthropocene, climate chaos, police brutality, all of these things are matters of those stories that we're telling and the socio-materialities that contain us. So we need a way out. We need some kind of ontological mutiny that allows us to notice new ways of being in the world. But we cannot do that until we think about the ways we think, see the way we see. And psychology is quite, is at the heart of that story, if you will. It's one thing that I've noticed a lot recently is that maybe originally that psychology vernacular arose, you know, at a time when people were needing greater insight into the the forces at work inside the individual 
but it seems like psychology vernacular has now risen to become like the medium through which the success of a society is evaluated, uh, yep. the success of a relationship is evaluated. Yep. Even like if there is any value, let's say, to something like animist ritual, it's thought to be like a psychological value and not yep. necessarily the value of actually interacting with and feeding a web of animate forces around us. It's like, oh, it must be a, a psychological value. So it's like yep. everything, it seems, is, is weighed through the through psychology vernacular it's a theological process really it's i said it's theological because it's it's the creation the ongoing creation of subjects that fit within a particular mode of being a sensorial monoculture if you will take trauma you know the, the ways we talk about trauma the most popular definitions and understandings of trauma think of trauma as an external event right? Something external happens to a subject, a person. That's the most basic understanding of trauma. Something bad happens to a person. Something external happens to a person. If you stay with that supposedly obvious understanding of trauma and just sit with it a little while longer, you might start to notice that it's doing many things at once. And one of the things it's doing is, is that it's demarcating it's already assigning boundaries between what it presupposes as an external event and what should be the lines of a proper subject, the boundaries, the skin boundaries of where Josh begins, right? How do you know that that's where Josh begins and that's where Josh ends, right? Or that's where an external event begins and that's where Josh ends. How do you, how do you draw the lines? So psychology is not just, you know, the stories we were told learning in psychology 101 is that is the scientific observation of human behavior, right? It's made to be some neutral thing. We're neutrally observing and recording and categorizing. It's, it's value neutral. It's apolitical. It's just the right thing to do if you really want to get down with understanding how human behavior works. What that definition hides is that it is actively creating human behavior. It is creating what it means to be human. It is value-laden. It is committed to a liberal, humanist, traditional subject. And that is why we want to say some other things about it. You know, it's really important to say that I'm not even saying that psychology is a lie. I mean, my ecological relational way of understanding knowledge wouldn't permit me to say that. Like, like it's a lie. And then what we're saying is the truth. Yeah. No, it, no, it's not. There's no successor narrative at work here. I'm saying that psychology produces, and I don't even want to speak about psychology as if it's a monolith, right? Yeah. There are many psychologies even there are many Western psychologies. There, there isn't one. This is not a villain story. This is not a superhero coming in to save the day, right? It, it's, it's that a particular genre of thinking about what it means to be human produces the world in certain ways. And it's quite at the heart of the geoengineering of our planet, more complicit in that process than we might even realize. I mean, you know, that that's very interesting. I think I think of colonial anthropology and colonial psychology and really like terms like disassociation, for example, like disassociation as a pathological label, right? And yes. then and then you look deeper into say like 
traditions that practice what's called by psychologists like dissociative trance, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and dissociation actually brings with it a whole lot of benefit in a lot of communities. Dissociation isn't just um, an either or thing, either you're yes. normal and whole and not dissociating or yes. you're dissociating and pathological, <laughs> right? Right. So yes. like there has seemed to be from, you know, from the Greek priestesses who went into dissociative states to traditions like the Yoruban trance traditions in which yes. Yes. dissociation, quote unquote, is actually the lifeblood of a community in a way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it's it's grandmothers, grandfathers, ancestors, non-humans speak to us and are part of what we would name our private psyches, right? We to be human is to be exposed, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're exposed, we're touched, we are palimpsest of multiple crossroads. I love this phrase. Palimpsests of multiple crossroads. How many forces are at play within what you call you? Where do these forces come from? Where are they going? What is success for them? It's been revealed in recent years that what you call you contains more cells that aren't technically you than cells that are you. The microbiome that inhabits you, that rents space within your miles of labyrinthine tubing, certainly has agency. This microbiome certainly affects mood, worldview, choices. Where did you fit in with all this? What caused you to do that one thing? What strange cocktail of feline toxoplasma and five spice? What shudder of a passing breeze? What twilight fluttering of a hummingbird moth's wings set the thoughts in motion that architected the trajectory of your life's inspirations? Human beings are porous, as you've heard me talk a lot about recently. So to label all the agencies at play as mine, to assume the one static subject who makes their way through a world of objects, processing my issues, my patterns, my anger, my rage, is perhaps too much emphasis on the individual and not enough on the living, animate geography which they inhabit. On the one hand, it places the individual as the most important thing in the universe. On the other hand, it burdens the individual to be the one who has to fix everything, the one who is solely responsible for everything that's, quote, wrong with them. And I'll go a step further and say that this ongoing stubbornness of insisting that all patterns are ours actually prevents us from coming to resolution around those patterns. Things, as I said in the previous episode, that could be cleared relationally through external ritual, communal ritual, through fire and water, offering and song, are dwelled upon, fixated upon, endlessly rehashed as static individual things, properties that I own, masses that live within us and are even claimed and owned as inseparable from us and worn like a badge. I am my anger. I am my trauma. If everything, absolutely every external event, is seen as an intrusion on a static self, this reinforces a very particular story of the world. That we are really ultimately the only things living in it. From bio, quote, Nothing feeds our modern hubris and civilizational pathology like the myth that the non-human world is bereft of agency, of vitality, of story. 
that we humans are magisterial anomalies interrupting a dead, swirling heap of mute, passive things, and that at best, the grace of human sentience animates objects with nothing more than a metaphorical vitality they otherwise lack. This binary view which divides the world into man and his playthings has helped catalyze a politics of indifference, an ecosystem of abuse, and a generic culture wherein an economic metric standard, a single notion, is offered as the measure of all value. Does psychology help treat refugees of this fracture? Sure. But it also can, as Bio is saying, perpetuate the fracture as well. What may be necessary is not to be so definitive in our causality, so delineated in our proclamations of trauma and not trauma, so quick to own pathologies and emotional states as real estate. For things are far more intricate than they seem. And in this breathing intricacy, this world populated with ancestral voices, the lines of what is pathology and what isn't, what is condition and what is divine gift, are not always so definitive. And the account I just gave was actually from sitting with a babalao who told me, after I had asked him a question about hearing voices in one's head, auditory hallucination episodes, and he was like, why would you want to, uh, why do you speak of it as if it were pathological? Why would you want to cure that? Why would you want to medicate that? You know, that this is your ancestor trying to reach out to you. This is a moment of porosity. The membranes of normalcy and neurotypicality are burdened by things that are supposedly transversal, right? That are outside, but are already inside. It needs to be said over and over again. We need to play it like a broken record that psychology is not the study of human behavior. It's the active manufacturing of subjectivity within modern civilization. It's an ethic of stability and settlement. And so what do you think then that something like modern trauma discourse, like what is that seeking to manufacture? And I'm sure it's inadvertent because I think there's a lot of people who have adopted trauma discourse as an attempt to, you know, grapple with the great forces of the world. But what does that manufacture? Like, where does that lead us eventually? To me, it seems almost Puritan at times, like the desire to rid ourselves of trauma and exist in some type of, I don't know, vision of perpetual safety, it seems like the exact same project as the Puritan project in a way. <laughs> that is very astute. It's various. It, it's, it's the understanding that, I, I forget his name, he wrote the book, The Black Sun. I think it's Stanton Marlin. He, he called it a helio. It's like the rule, the regime of the sun king, right? The sun king is this archetype, right? That insists that everything be light, right? Everything has to be subject to his rule of light. And it's a pathologization of the dark psychic life. So it's the insistence that we ought to be well and that we ought to be happy you know, which happens to be enshrined in the constitution of a certain nation state we're both familiar with, right? It's like we ought to have the right to happiness. Happiness is the end goal. The darkness is just the means, the shriveled, impoverished means to the end. So um, yes, trauma seems to be doing the work. 
to, for me, it seems to be doing two things at least. It's naming the wound, I call it. It's this onto-epistemological rupture, right? It seems to be naming the wound and also creating this milieu of permanence, right? It's like a way of preserving bodies. Think about how trauma uh, developed, how the discourse, at least one genealogy of trauma, traces it to the emergence of the railway, the trains, Mm. industrialization, speeding, transportation became faster in Europe and in the United States. And then, especially in in Europe, people started to have accidents and they started to experience this dissociation as a result, this bodily schism, this corporeal diffraction, if you will. And what emerged around that was this, in part, theological, economic, compensatory, legal exercise and disciplinary exercise to understand this dissociation. And so what started out as the railway spine became to us trauma, right? And and, and I'm sure these stories are already known to you. So it, it seems trauma is this attempt to fix bodies in their productive cycles within modern civilization. It's an industrial exercise. It's the, it's the ethic of the city, right? And it's also a way of naming the unknown God, right? To, to borrow that biblical phrase, right? So it's a way of us naming something primal and beastly and monstrous that we would do everything we can to avoid, right? So we throw black bodies at it. We throw animal bodies at it. We throw we throw props at it so that we can preserve the space, the flattened surface of the city. And then, and then what I've noticed recently is that we also like point fingers at it when it's in other people, but then kind of celebrate it when it's in us or like it becomes um, the discourse also becomes weaponized, right? It becomes like, uh, you know, my my trauma is something precious and sacred, but like your your trauma is something that that really needs to be gotten rid of, or or can't you see all of your actions have to do with your trauma? But like it's I'm allowed, I'm allowed to have all of my actions come from my trauma. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is really really insightful because you know it's it, it's a it's it's not U.S. centric, but it's easier to locate it within the developmental psychology strand in us it is the only way to locate the body right because i mean when you see bodies as atomized and pre-individuated right they are already individual they're not individuating they are not part of larger flows they're not migrating or you know murmuring murmurating bodies they're just there the only way to understand the agonistic spaces of what we might rudely call trauma is to trace it along the lines of uh, development and to say something must have happened to you when you were young, something must have happened, someone did something horrible to you when you were a child, or it's it's something to do with your attachment styles with your parents. We we are committed to the individual. Psychology is wholly committed to the individual and it will do everything it can (laughs) to preserve the ethos of the individual. And, and, you know, what you just said about naming it in others and 
holding it as oneself. Oh, that's a that's another precious thing to say because in my understanding and my emerging take on these things, I feel the space of the citizen subject is shrinking. I think the the world kicking back and the the roar of a world that will no longer be instrumentalized. It's kicking back against its instrumentalization. It's becoming fugitive. And this is what we call climate chaos, right? I think this is shrinking the space of the citizen and it's creating a new kind of queer privilege. Mm -hmm. And you might call it the space of the victim. This is not to dismiss victimization or violence, but to also notice, this, this is to notice that there's something deeply political about the ways that we perform victimhood today. It's like almost some, it's almost like currency today. Mm. Yes, it's like I have suffered more than you. And it plays into this intersectional field, unfortunately, that already is troubled with ideas on racialization and who gets what and who's, who does what. Pathology as currency. These days, everything is addressed as an individual symptom. Everything is owned as property within the individual subject. And this is part of why claiming pathologies is so popular right now. Pathology is owned as identity. And this isn't to dismiss the fact that it can be valuable and important to have a diagnosis, but it's gone way beyond that now. Like the latest thing, have you heard about this? Performative enactments of dissociative identity disorder, what used to be called multiple personality disorder on TikTok. So people performing their multiple personalities on TikTok for public view and psychologists scrambling to determine whether those enactments are real DID or not. And of course, whether the DID is real is the crudest question at play here. It misses the overarching aesthetic of it all, the great fractal beauty of it as a brilliant kaleidoscopic lens into the postmodern state. Because what part of it is real? Is the disorder real? Is the absolutist framework through which the disorder is named real? Is the medium of TikTok real? When we film ourselves in any situation, is it real? Perhaps all of it is pathological, or none of it is. And so this image is a perfect reflection of the modern world, mirrors within mirrors, a thousand plateaus of brokenness, each of them what Gregory Bateson called a continuous, self-vibrating region of intensities. But yeah, you could say that the end result, the final culmination of the culture of the individual subject, is the worship of individual pathology. Where else could it possibly have gone, this culture of individualism? First, we had subjects questing for perfection as currency. Now we have subjects proclaiming brokenness as currency. But it's still all about the subject, about what Bio would call the citizen. What I find is that it often recapitulates that worship of the individual. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting because it's like, on the one hand, you know, if you take the view that, okay, the, the purpose is to just like get rid of all the trauma, get rid of all the trauma, then you're, you're playing into, you know, you could say that kind of puritanical worldview. And on the other hand, if, if you say like the, the purpose is to just celebrate the trauma, celebrate the trauma. So it's like, well, what if you weren't the issue at all? Like, 
what if it's not about you either doing like endless amounts of shadow work on one end or, <laughs> endless or you know what I mean? Like, like, or like ridding yourself of all demons on the other hand, like what, yeah. what if it's about a web, a, a relationship, a, a system, yeah. like you said, yeah. like, you know, what if ancestral trauma is much more about, Oh, do you have a shrine to your ancestors? And do you say their names and, and much less about like something that always has to be tackled inside the confines of the individual head because you know it seems to me that like individual heads aren't designed to absorb that much shock it's almost like the the tyranny of let me call it the work right is it is the tyranny of the work is there's always something you have to do because it comes down to is is reductionistic is like everything that and, and and this is this also speaks to larger issues in psychology that experience is yours. It's like your experience. There's a, there's a relational field of ownership, propertyed ownership that is there. We don't see experience as the crisscrossing nexus of more than human agency at play. We see it as it's Josh's experience. You own the experience and you're entitled to it as the subject right? It's your mule, it's your farmland, it's yours. And, and that's, that's, of course, problematic because then we assign some kind of, you know, you know, anything that goes wrong in this field that is ours, this cotton field is ours to tend to, right? It's, you build a shrine there, you do the work there, you, like you said, you named it so beautifully and eloquently. What did you say? The endless, endless hours of doing <laughs> shadow work. The idea that there are certain things that need to be tended to relationally and externally, like, yeah. you know, through simple ritual or through, you know, through uh, the way that we interact with the larger web, as opposed to taking yeah. it all on our, ourselves. Yeah. I see people cracking under the pressure of either the need to rid themselves of trauma or the endless shadow work. I see like that, that it's, it's too much about the individual. It's too, like, it and, and individuals, you know, this isn't the true understanding of, of bodies and how bodies are in interaction and how forces that are at work. And, you know, why, when you went to that place, did you feel a certain thing or why, when, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what got stirred up was it, you know, you wrote this beautiful thing about the dust from, I think it was from from Chad. Was it from Chad? The dust in the yes. atmosphere and the Bodele depression in the Sahara Desert. Yes, it's it's the driest place on the on the planet. Supposedly the driest place on the planet, and it's um, it's in the Sahara Desert, a region in the Sahara Desert. Yes, in the Chad area, it's the remnant of the mega Lake Chad, now dried out and shriveled to just a tiny area. Um, what it has left behind is this this dusty field, this dusty area. Every year, a gust of wind carries sand or the dust and takes this dust across the Atlantic to the Americas, right? And it, it deposits some of the dust in the, in the waters along the way. Some of the dust goes to the Amazon forest and fertilizes it. And some of the dust goes to bodies in New York and and becomes respiratory diseases so it's the it's a dust plume of multiple dimensions if you will
And in this dust plume of multiplicity that fertilizes even as it disrupts, that brings life-giving oxygen in the Amazon even as it causes respiratory illness in New York, that makes the world simultaneously more and less breathable at the exact same time, what is the line between individual body and world, between thinker and thought? Thought is transversal. It's not human, right? So that in a sense, everything around us is doing and thinking and becoming. We need new gods now that have new takes on what thought is doing, what bodies are doing, and the impasses of well-being. And it's interesting, you know, you're mentioning thought. And I, I think you wrote something that says thoughts do not come solely yes. from the inside, nor do they come solely from the outside. And they this is something that's really yeah. interesting in relation to the discussion on psychology. You know, many, many, many traditions around the world will tell you that thoughts aren't just generated by the human head, right? That mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there's a larger there's a larger flow or there's there's a being who got a hold of you for a second or like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and i think i think this is interesting in terms of the weight that modern that modernity puts on the value of individual thought and also the the gravitas the weight of individual thought and mm-hmm. that's something that i think in relation to what you're saying needs to be blown open a bit if the individual is the prime unit of everything, then the individual thought must, you know, it's what creates genius. It what It's what does all of these wonderful individualist things. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's not how many traditions around the world have seen it. Many traditions have seen that as an interplay with yes. being and beings. Yes. And, and that's just one other way of saying that we are not always citizens. Mm. which is what the state does not know how to calculate. We're not always citizens. The individual is me. We could individuate as me, Josh, virus, computer, ancestor, lingering ghost, demon. And, and, and maybe that's how the individuation works in that moment, right? If, if we cease to see ourselves as individuals and like Gilbert Simondon would suggest, we, we see ourselves as individuations, which is processual and relational, then it's possible to say that it doesn't happen here. Uh, cognition is, how did Anne Catherine Hales put it? You know, she, she spoke about non-conscious cognitive networks, right? Mm. It's that cognition is larger than consciousness. Um, cognition is... A telephone line, a technology, a pharmaceutical company. It's how thinking is territorialized. And it has nothing to do with a so-called predetermined human individual. Just sit with that for a moment. All those thoughts that pass through, those ones that seem like the most important thing in the world, what if, just what if, they're not actually ours in the way we think of as hours. Have you ever seen a wave of agitated thought take a room at the exact same time? Thoughts are not that different from weather patterns. There are low pressure fronts, there are periods of high friction, there are vortexes that are torrents, and there are hurricanes. Within this flow, this current of consciousness, what is ours? 
what of the individual psyche is actually ours? As Bio says, quote, thoughts don't come from within, neither do they come from without. They emerge between. It's the same with feelings. I like to think that the gentle dipping of a leaf under the weight of a dewdrop can set off a series of events that flow through us as what we call depression, and that the molten formation of a rock through the intra-activity of weather and technology and story is experienced with joy in a specific moment. I like to imagine that when a seed falls into the earth, it experiences grief, and its grief is met by the loamy femininity of the soil, and that is how trees sprout out with joy. Perhaps those moments of unspeakable silence, when depths churn and sides groan, when words escape you, when a pill or a diagnosis doesn't add up to much, when all you want to do is squeeze yourself into the tiniest place in the universe, it is because you, for all intents and purposes, are co-performing the disintegration of imaginal cells within a cocoon and knowing the pain of becoming a moth. What you just said about the work, right? What you alluded to, right? In naming things. I was just asking myself the question that if we saw ourselves as between bodies, then there might there might come a place where we say, well, there's nothing to do about that. There's, there's nothing to fix here. The, the feeling that I've just experienced is not mine. It's the webs, if you will. Maybe that was the tears of, um, and I just wrote about this recently, that maybe what we rudely call depression is a seed dropping to the earth and experiencing discombobulation. And maybe we partake in these experiences more than we know, because emotion is not ours. It's not a brain phenomenon. It's a territorial phenomenon, and it enlists bodies in how it comes to matter. I want to repeat one line that Bio said. Emotion is not ours. It's not a brain phenomena. It's a territorial phenomena, and it enlists bodies in how it comes to matter. What a quote that is. This is one of the beautiful challenges of talking with Bio. He spouts these phrases as if they're nothing, and each one, of course, could be unpacked and given its own shrine and its own episodes and its own hymns of praise. So let's take that for a minute. Emotion is not ours. It's a territorial phenomena, a geographical phenomena. It is born of wind and corn kernels and drum rhythms and how far it took our ancestors to walk to the well for water, and how their lungs interacted with ancient dust blooms in which animals skirted the periphery of their storytelling fires. Emotion has current just as thoughts do. But even though tradition after tradition after tradition directly says that we don't own our emotions, the psychologization of discourse has emotion owned as property and identity. Even to the point that yoga and meditation teachers will talk about owning emotion as identity, as if this is yogic teaching. And it's definitely not yogic teaching. And I know it's an intricate issue, but for today, how does it feel to feel into emotion as geographical, as weather, as vagabond spirits seeking compatible harmonic receptor sites? as microbiome, emotion as fully realized beings, as passing gods. So maybe 
we are constantly to varying degrees in touch with the field, a field that psychology does not know how to name. And, and in shriveling ourselves to the size of pixels, we are performing this territorializing work, this ritual placemaking work that wants to make everything safe. You know, since, since the real work we're doing is preserving the individual, and boundaring and externalizing the disturbances in the field. What we're trying to do all the time is to mirror ourselves to each other, is to concretize the wilds, is to push it to the ground, to the subterranean. And, and that is how the Anthropocene emerges over and over again. Concretizing the wilds. How many ways do we try to concretize the wilds? And is it possible that liberal discourse, the very discourse that is supposed to be saving the wilds from concrete, unknowingly concretizes the wilds itself? Could it be that in its own efforts to find sanity and safety, it is participating in the very lupicide that it fervently petitions to prevent? You know, lupicide, the extermination of wolves. The elimination of all that howls in the night beyond our fences, of unwelcome vernacular, unwelcome perspectives, unwelcome traumas, unwelcome others, specifically because they are wild. We claim to love wildness, do we? I do not see much love of wildness anymore. Love of wildness means loving the world on its terms, loving the uncontrollable other, Loving the callous roar of the fierce goddess as she devours all we know and all we love over time. We love to proclaim our love for the balance of nature. We claim to be on the side of nature when it serves. We love it when that balance arrives in the form of wolves reintroduced to Yellowstone or a new national park designated. But when nature's wild intent, nature's balance on nature's terms, truly impacts human populations, when it butts up against the Anthropocene, the overarching humanism project, then we immediately retreat to walling off the wild. We become lupicidal. Truly loving the wild means loving the fact that we are just passing through. Loving the fact that our lifetime is limited. Loving the fact that nature is going to devour us too. Loving the unwelcome perspective. Loving the howl of the unfamiliar. It also means understanding the ways that nature self-corrects in times of crisis, and that a lot of what we might be experiencing as out of balance is, in fact, nature itself continually balancing herself. And it only makes us uncomfortable because ultimately it is out of our predictability and out of our control. And here there is something deep at play in what Bio says about the city. Most modern liberal discourse, as he says, is the discourse of the city. It wants to marry itself to nature when it serves, but it is a discourse born of the city, and it remains often blind that it contains within it the same geographical blueprint as the city. The same walls and compartments, the same siege defense tactics, the same goals of comfort and convenience at the expense of the wilds, the same fear of barbarians from other places. So what I see happening most often, instead of an embrace of wildness, is a response to a crisis being met with desperate attempts to control, 
The wilds have gotten wilder. They must be controlled. As Bio says, quote, I cradle a potent question that touches today's very crucial attempts to make sense of and address climate chaos, racism, and other civilizational ills. What if the ways we are in response to a crisis are the crisis? In what ways might we say, along with Jean Uri, that the hospital is ill? How does the therapeutic reproduce the familiar? How do our solutions leave us trapped within cycles of sameness? Responding to a crisis with crisis. Responding to Puritanism with more Puritanism. So liberals, right, are shocked and dismayed when right-wing Puritans ban books. And then we go and do silly things like trying to extricate all the problematic words and names from Roald Dahl's children's books. You know, names like Rudyard Kipling and words like fat or ugly. Tell me, how is that not a regurgitated Puritanism? And what is the vision of the sanitized world in which nothing problematic is allowed within its walls, and yet everything other outside those walls is barbaric? It is the walled-off city. It is Puritan suburbia. It is the simultaneous banishing of the monster and the worship of the monster from afar. Yet it turns out that the delicate balance of nature is far more monstrous, far more other than we'd even imagined. Even the wolves of Yellowstone, poster children for the feel-good balance of nature, are governed by something other, something wild, toxoplasma. The behavior of the wolves of Yellowstone is governed by a feline-born bacteria that drives unpredictable behavior and increases risk-taking, and the infected risk-takers are either rewarded as leaders of the pack or vilified as outcasts. And so, the behavior driving the delicate balance of nature comes from something that most closely resembles, in animate terms, spirit possession, in which everything, every being, in one way or another, is being made use of by greater forces. In this case, a larger, microbial, animate agency whose sole intent is to try to get beings to act more unpredictably so that they might find their way to a big cat's jaws and get eaten. Do we love this, too, when we proclaim our love for nature? Do we understand that in the movement of human events and human history, what we consider agency might not be agency at all? And what we consider ownership might not be ownership at all? And that what we consider ours might not be ours at all? And even what we call the Anthropocene might have been driven by microbes or spirit possessors? Or do we love nature only insofar as it fits our definitions of what natural balance should be? Do we love the wolf only as a symbol of wildness? Do we love the reintroduced wolf more than the historic wolf that howled on the periphery of consciousness and invaded Freudian dreams? We like our wolves wild enough yet not so wild as to sing aloud the unwritten agenda of nature, which rings out everywhere should we care to look and listen. She is the possessor. She is in control. She wants our hearts on a plate. She wants our demise just as she wants our praise songs. And there is no alignment we could ever find with her in which we are not ultimately at her feet. And I feel what you're talking about is really like the foundations of an animate 
worldview and yeah. you know within this animate worldview reevaluating and refeeling and reassessing you know where the individual is placed within that web of relationality for like for psychologists to come along and say oh oh you must be depressed well look at the web of relationality in which that person exists you know yeah, the famous krishnamurti quote like it's it's no measure of health to be well adjusted, be well adjusted. Not my yes. sick society right we have to look at all of these webs of relationality and understand that yeah of course people are depressed and of course people are anxious and then from that maybe not try to treat it as like an individual isolated pathology that we need to just address piece by piece and one by one start to reevaluate systems relationships like the relationship of of whole systems to one another even before they become system systematic mm. right asystemic right um because the this the systemic is intelligible i mean but re relationality exceeds intelligibility it's the insensible in its flows so mm. even in a sense the the field of relationality exceeds the intelligible where we're being invited to stay with the flow it's, it's flow whether it's whether it's rendered legible or not but we're being invited to hold space for the fact that not everything will be reduced to the algorithms of intellectual capture. Mm. We will not systematize everything. The world flows beyond that. It's profoundly difficult for us to worship the mysterious. Is is what's coming to me. Difficult. Yes. It's very difficult for us to worship the mysterious. We all, like even we have the best intentions, but it seems that we always want to find categorizations and find culprits and and then you see like the growth of artistic traditions and spiritual traditions which always seem to arise out of some kind of story that's not so neat and tidy it's not yeah. so you know it's not so you know safe yes. i think it's also in a sense permit me to use the very the word that i it's not one of my favorites true <laughs> i think it's also true to to say that we worship the mysterious all the time. The, the way we're worshiping the primal, tehomic, you know, chiasmic, chimeric force that is indicated by trauma, where we mark the spot to the unknown God, is to throw things at it. This is our form of worship. It's take this, take this, take this. It's the Tuskegee experiments. It's the cotton plantation. It's racialization. It's we're constantly giving, you know, to preserve our space. It's like we sacrifice the the thing that we have branded as not quite human, you know, to preserve the space of the human. Mm -hmm. So we take a black body there and we commit, we create a paradigm of medical apartheid. And that's a history of bodies dug out from their graves for scientific experiments in public health. Right. It's that we worship the mysterious by sacrificing the base, the the animal, you know, the, the beast, the monster. Right. Mm. So that the thing to do then is to listen to Guattari and make space for the incomprehensible, which is to me not therapy. It's ab therapy. It is making room for the monster. You know, I, I've talked on the podcast about how when those type of sacrifices are ritualized and conscious within a culture it's very different than when that 
worship is under the surface. And so that fundamental human need to have that basic energetic of sacrifice will find like different ways to play itself out. I agree. And you see, brother, it's maybe then the thing is we need new forms of worship. More specifically, we need new gods. Psychology is is in a sense the worship of a certain god. It's the it's worship, the form of worship. It's the god of the sentence. And now the spirits of the punctuation, <laughs> the spirits, the spirits of the spaces between the lines, which is where tricksters abide are calling for new forms of worship because the sentence isn't interesting anymore. Well, the, you've talked about the spaces, the between the punctuation spaces being where Trickster lives, and it reminds me of issue. issue. I mean, issue lives between the lines. He lives in the punctuation marks. He lives in the places of silences, as well as haunting the words as themselves. Um, he's the cracks between the the things, the things that have exploded, or the spaces between the shrapnel. So, issue is constantly beckoning on us to to lose our way, and maybe this is how we begin um, to do so, to to take new adventures into new possibilities of being and becoming. Yes, issue is the issue is the traffic outside the psychotherapist's office. Mm. Disturbing the easy therapeutic alliance that the, the flows between client and therapist. I want to go back to this talk of safety in the modern psychological world. And there's a story from the Polynesian traditions about how before Trickster came along, humans were basically like this amorphous mass. They were like gelatinous kind of uh, they didn't have any. They didn't have any joints, right? They didn't have any movement capability. And and trickster Maui and that tradition came along and was like, wow, this is extremely boring. Like, you know, <laughs> we, we have to give these people some limbs, right? So he took out his club and like basically uh, broke all their um, appendages so that they could move. And and that yeah. particular blunt force trauma created like <laughs> all of the movement possible you know Mm. it it created this world of movement and i kind of think of like the overemphasis on safety as as like a desire to return us to that kind of gelatinous non-moving state right and to me it's very much like a religion of like the suburbs it's like the let's have a safe individual enclosed in their little nice suburban house and that's like the, in a way, like kind of the ultimate vision of safety. Now, now, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, obviously I want people to feel safe. It's not an indictment. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, but, but I think the overemphasis on safety, like where is it seeking to take us? And what is it, what is really the paradigm that's being spoken of? What is the actual, where in history does safety live? Has there ever been an example of safety, you know? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on on this. This is one way to bring in my favorite Norse characters, Freya and Baldur. <laughs> right? I tell the story all the time. It's just archetypally resonant for me. It's a mother who realizes that her son, Baldur, the handsomest of Norse gods, is going to die and will have to go to hell. 
Yes, the story starts with Baldr, the most beautiful of the gods. He's fair and bright like the sun. His hall is a joyous hall. All the gods love him. There's nothing wrong with Baldr at all, except for one thing. He has bad dreams. He dreams, as Neil Gaiman writes, of the world's ending and the sun and the moon devoured by a wolf. He dreams of pain and death without end. So his father, Odin, seeks out the source of Baldur's dreams. He travels far and wide. He goes to the land of the dead where a crone is preparing a meal in a cauldron. Who's that meal for? Odin asks. It's for Baldur, she says. For he is coming here soon. Baldur, your beautiful son, is going to die. Odin tells the grave news to the gods. They can't have this. Baldur cannot die. He's the most beautiful being in the world. So Baldur's mother, Odin's wife, Frigga, sets out on a great quest. So Freya, or Frigga, as I've been told by a scholar, Frigga goes to the realms and stabilizes everything. Stabilizes everything. Basically by extracting capitalist style, a promise from everything, from a plant to animals to weathering conditions, that they will not harm her son, right? Sign the contract here, Lion, that you will not harm my son. And Lion signs and says, I will not bite, I will not roar, I will not kill your son. Quote, She walked the earth and exacted an oath from each thing that she encountered, never to harm Baldur the Beautiful. She spoke to fire, and it promised it would not burn him. Water gave its oath never to drown him. Iron would not cut him, nor any of the other metals. Stones promised never to bruise his skin. Frigga spoke to the beasts, the trees, and to the birds, and to all things that creep and fly and crawl. And each creature promised that its kind would never hurt Baldr. The trees agreed, oak and ash, pine and beech, birch and fir, that their wood would never be used to hurt him. She conjured up diseases and spoke to them. And each of the diseases that can hurt or wound a person agreed that it too would never touch Baldr. You heard it here first in the Norse myths, conjuring up diseases and trying to obtain from them contract agreements of safety never seems to work well. She asked everything, everything. That is, except one thing. And she misses a spot, as you do in these kind of stories, and the spot is the mistletoe. The little sprig of mistletoe. I mean, it was so small and young, and it wasn't even really its own plant. It lived on other plants. It was just kind of a little tiny, neither here nor there thing. And Loki, the trickster, again like Maui, gets wind of this this mist spot and takes the mistletoe, fashions it into a weapon, gives it to one of the gods that is playing games with Baldur because they started to play games with his imperviousness, right? They would throw axes on him and weapons and because he could not be harmed because of this contract that Frigga extracted from everyone, it became a heavenly game to try to kill. And so he, this god, whose name I forget, 
ha- is handed this mistletoe contrived arrow and he throws it at Baldo and, and he dies. But the story is really about, for me, safety. It's about how safety is almost um, comorbid with this modern um, infatuation with permanence, with controlled stability, with controlled agency. And it almost gives some compassionate grounds to that tendency, like a mother's desire to keep her son forever. However ill-advised that might be, it's like, I will keep you forever. I will love you so much that I will deny you pleasure because I've denied you pain. I'm simultaneously denying you pleasure, the pain of pleasure, right? So it's it's almost like modernity is this long game. It, and it has, like you said, we, we want to not parse completely apart, but to notice how there are subtle differences between situational desires for safety, control, or about you know one circumstances, and a paradigmatic the reproduction of some kind of existential flatness that insists that everything ought to to meet us on our own terms. So yes, um, this is time for, as I said, to meet the monster. This is where. This is where Loki comes in and Maui to shoot us in our, you know, in our sides and give us the gift of dying well. Mm, give us the gift of dying well. Yeah. Beautiful. And you, and you could feel, right, like the attempt to obtain contracts from everything that like, yes. okay, this is going to be this way and this is going to be that way and this is going to be expressed this way and this is going to be said that way and everything is, right, everything's going to happen exactly the way we want it to, right? And that, yes. that's like the biggest invitation card for Trickster that, that exists. <laughs> like, yes. You know, that, <laughs> and that's exactly Trickster's role is to, you know, always there's there's always going to be some place we leave exposed and often in seeking the safety we leave more exposed than we know um mm. safety is a form of exposure <laughs> in the very attempt to shield ourselves from the so-called outside we've already brought the outside inside it's just like wanting to boundary toxic materials by cleaning toxic materials, cleaning our toxic fields, already bringing in those that toxicity we're battling with into our surroundings. So the outside is already in, like Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. The monster is already within. <laughs> Back to Balder. The gods were stunned in the very act of trying to prevent a thing they had caused it to be. In seeking promises of safety, they had made themselves less safe. They began to prepare Balder for his funeral. Mourners wept at the side of his body. And as they wept, and as they lamented, Odin crouched down by Balder's ear, and he whispered something. And what he whispered, only Odin knows. When Odin whispered in Balder's ear, nor God nor man was nigh to hear, what Odin whispered bending low, no man knoweth or error shall know. Baldur's spirit was taken to the underworld, to hell, as it's called in the Norse traditions. And Baldur's brother Hermod was sent to the underworld to plead with the queen of the underworld 
to plead with hell herself to revive him and let him live again. Please, Hermod implored. Baldur was loved by every single creature in the Nine Realms. Every creature is weeping for him as frosted leaves and grass sweat with the thaw of spring. Every single creature in the Nine Realms weeps for Baldur. Can't you bring him back to life? And Hell asks, Every single creature? If you can show me, she says, that every single creature in the Nine Realms weeps for Baldur, then I will restore his life. If but one creature does not mourn him, then he stays here forever. So Hermod travels across the Nine Realms, and he finds that everywhere the creatures of the world are weeping for Baldur. Quote, The sound of weeping was heard like to falling streams. Men wept, as did also every animal peaceful and wild. Stones had tears, and metals were made wet. On trees and plants and on every grass blade were dewdrops of mourning for Baldur. Trees and stones, bears and salmon, eagles and sparrows, all the beings of the nine realms weeping for Baldur. All of them, except one. One giantess, who did not weep for him at all. He never was particularly nice to me, she said, and she didn't weep for Baldur. And so, Baldur was lost to the world. The gods' grief was deep, and their vengeance against Loki was swift. They found him, captured him, how they captured him is a tale for another day, and they imprisoned him. They imprisoned him beneath the world, bound up, immobilized, unable to move or stir. With a venomous serpent above his face whose open mouth dripped scorching poison, and Loki's wife sat by his side for an eternity, catching serpent poison in a jar and then emptying it out. And as she emptied it and turned her attention away from Loki for just a moment, the poison would drip on Loki's face, and he would writhe and scream in pain. And as he writhed and screamed in pain, the very earth would shake. Tremors and tumult marking the onset of the apocalypse. Ragnarok. Yes, the Norse apocalypse comes when the gods try to pin down Trickster. Try to pin down the other. Try to create a false safety. For Trickster needs space to breathe, to move. Conflict needs healthy ritual outlet, for it too is sacred. The story of Baldur and Loki speaks directly to what to do in a world in which things do not transpire on our terms, in which there are no guarantees. Loki is not the force to be shunned, to be walled out because he doesn't speak the way we want him to, to be extricated from books, to be silenced in the mouths of comedians. He is part of the great play. We need to remember tricksters in this time of polarization and views that are neither here nor there, gods of the spaces in between. Again, this reminds me of what you've, you've written about the spirits of the fault line. I'm actually very excited because I feel like some of these kind of false walls of safety are starting to 
crack and crash down, or, or maybe they were never even really constructed to begin with. And it seems like this is a time, it seems like this is a time when new gods may be arising and spirits of the fault line may be active and learning how to navigate that rather than trying to simply put up flimsy shelters in the midst of the hurricane, maybe, maybe what we're called to do. That's, I think, the articulation behind the spirits of the fault line. It's, there's a site of generative incapacitation, postural deficits, I call them, where we need to fall down and lose the posture of rectilinearity, standing upright, the so-called upright man. This is where we fall to our knees, to the ground, kiss the earth, so to speak. There's something about that that makes us sensorially alive to new grammars of becoming, new ways of framing the subject, of framing subjectivities. Because safety is a secretion of the city. It's colonial. We need to move beyond that, or we keep on reproducing modernities way of thinking about the subject as either a victim or an oppressor. And one demands rehabilitation and the other demands imprisonment. This atomic Cartesian feeding of rules mm. preserves the paradigm that creates those, those rules. Mm. So this is the time for psychological mutiny. You know, what you're saying about like falling to one's knees and kissing the ground. I've spent a lot of time amongst the devotional traditions within India. And, you know, the the mad saint who simply runs out into the street and has no choice but to cry the, the name of the divine or fall to their knees. You know, how does this meet psychology? And there are situations I see, you know, situations like... Maybe what you need to do is run out into the street and fall on your knees and cry the names of the gods. And, you know, there, there's a certain movement that I think modernity prevents itself from feeling because it's, it's, yeah. it's so afraid of words like devotion or words like worship or yeah. words like, you know, um, yeah. surrender or words like, you know, loss of control, terms like loss of control. Yeah. And celebrating that lack of control or loss of control actually may do more to actually get things moving in a way yeah yeah it's it, it's it's um it's what felix Guattari said you know leave the couch leave the freudian couch mm. it's like walk away from the freudian couch that might be a better model a schizoanalytic model a, a, a better model of therapy than being on the couch the couch is Modernity is just this giant couch. <laughs> it's a huge couch. It's like we're all strapped to this couch. And whether we like it or not, we're, we're, we're in the couch. So saying leave the couch is more revolutionary than it seems. It's, it's in crying to gods, speaking to trees. That might seem nonsensical. And maybe it's nonsensicality. It's non-instrumentality is the point. Mm. It's not instrumental to your healing. It's a gesture towards the wilds beyond our fences. Yeah, or it's like sense-making through the senses as opposed to sense-making as like a rigorous intellectual exercise, right? Mm. But I have, to, I have to say, like, 
of all the like horrid metaphors I've heard for modernity, there's something <laughs> more frightening about the image of modernity as a giant Freudian couch. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down to you. I'm gonna write that down yeah, to you. Yeah. Good one. I'd love to hear you explode that one out more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for gifting it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing the picturing like this very like you know, Austrian couch, but it's starting to get a little frayed. Like, yeah, at the edge, so the, the, the foam is starting to poke through a little bit. And, uh-huh. and meanwhile, <laughs> the, meanwhile, the tentacles of the monster are engulfing you. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and wanting to make new gods out of your skull. So, what are we called to do in this age of the Anthropocene? Is it to turn the lens on ourselves again and again and again? Is it to try to petrify and calcify stories within us? Or is it to fall to our knees before vast powers fall to our knees in gratitude again and again? What does it mean to discover alignment to a world that unfolds on its terms and its terms alone? Bio asks. For the Yoruba of West Africa, he says, Every seemingly ordinary moment is braided with gratitude, with a sentiment that goes a little deeper than saying, thank you. I've often wondered why, he says. It might have something to do with the humbling sense of forces beyond our control, with rumors of our littleness in the cosmic scheme of things, and with a cultural history that reminds us that we are not masters of our own destiny. May this decade bring more than just solutions, more than just a future. May it bring words we don't know yet and temporalities we have not yet inhabited. May we be slower than speed could calculate and swifter than the pull of gravity of words can incarcerate. And may we be visited so thoroughly and met in wild places so overwhelmingly that we are left undone ready for composting, ready for the impossible. Welcome to the Decade of the Fugitive. First off, many, many thanks to Bio Okomalafe for this wonderful conversation, and there's more with Bio to come. And you can find out more about his work at biookomalafe.net. That's B-A-Y-O-A-K-O-M-O-L-A-F-E dot net. There were other contributors to this episode that I want to briefly mention. C.D. Bay, the wonderful singer who I've been working with for quite a while now, sang on this episode. And you can find her work on Spotify. Her name is S-I-D-I-B-E. My old friend Sonny Reinhardt from the band Necrot offered some guitar. And Ben Murphy did that beautiful, haunting, low vocal chanting. He's encanting the old Norse story of Balder. And it was wonderful to have Ben's voice on this episode. Ben is an eco-bardic vocalist, composer, and storyteller in residence at the School of Mythopoetics 
I referenced a couple books in this episode. These are Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology, just an absolutely wonderful read about the Norse myths, and A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari. And then I also referenced the TikTok-inspired surge of dissociative identity disorder, an article in Psychology Today from March 2022. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. It costs as little as $6 a month, and patrons get access to two monthly online study groups where we get to dive really deep into the topics that are explored on this podcast. It's a wonderful conversation. It's a great group of people. And I invite everyone to support the vision of the podcast by becoming patrons and joining us for the conversation. If you're interested in becoming a patron, you can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. And until next time, may our lives be filled with imagination, vision, and wonder. 